Hey folks, welcome. It's been a while. Hey Sounds... folks, welcome. <laughs> it's the Unsung Podcast. I'm Mark, and that guy with the high voice, Chris. I'm Chris. <laughs> or am I? Or 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 is it is it Chris? Is it? Could it be someone else? <laughs> we don't know just by looking. <laughs> just by looking, yeah. No one can see really. Um, so yes, we've been away for a while, um, really. Haven't we? It's been a busy couple of weeks. Yeah, I have uh-huh. been in four hundred different countries. Four, literally four hundred. I've had five hundred years worth of hay fever. Five hundred years. <laughs> That's why you look like you're six hundred years old. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> struggling, and you've got a cold as well, don't you? Yeah, I, I'm, I, I was uh, last week. My sister was over with the nieces, which was just fucking lovely, adorable little children. How, how adorable some, little germ warfare. <laughs> yeah, how could how could somebody that's come from a bloodline create something that fucking cute? I do not understand it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, turns out that they are also little receptacles for disease. So yeah. yeah, I have a mild cold. It didn't seem to phase them at all. So I'm trying to remain unfazed by it. <laughs> uh, well, I was getting smacked all around the face by nature. For the last couple of weeks Lovely But I've been working on Different things behind the scenes If anybody that's listening regularly Wonders WTF is going on With yeah. these guys this week uh, We have uh, I think a really Really interesting Interview coming up At the end of the month No spoilers there As well as uh, uh, Us trying to hook up uh, Some of the, the regular guests And get a bunch of these Bonus things recorded For the subs And it's just juggling that And life duties And life. germ warfare and Germ warfare <laughs> Biological terrorism yeah. uh, So so yeah, it's it's been a very, very, very busy couple of weeks for us, but we have come back with an extremely big subject this week, and honestly, my head is fucking bursting. I know, I know you say it's a big subject, but is it really that big a subject? But I thought, well, <laughs> I suppose not. what we've not done is gone off on huge tangents yeah. into, you know, let's stop a while and talk about bobbed haircuts. <laughs> uh, the history of bobbed haircuts, when the first bob haircut appeared in music, it was in 1947, it was a drummer who actually accidentally set his long hair on fire. <laughs> um, so we're not going to deviate too much. Uh, we are, however, going to delve into what I think is a substantial substantial subject of placebo. Placebo, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say that as well. <laughs> placebo. The British. The British. Rock band. Not the Belgian jazz band from the 1970s. <laughs> Is there one? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. well, I didn't even know that. Uh, I just meant uh, because there's a, a common misconception that they are Swedish, uh, which is actually a, a misconception I laboured under for quite some time. I think uh, it was Stefan. He's not, is he not Swedish? Uh, Stefan's Swedish. The original drummer was Swedish. Mm-hmm. Brian is Belgian. Belgian. Via Scotland. Um, which also caught me off guard because I thought Prime Malko was Swedish. Uh, mm. But we'll get into that. So we're going to do Placebo. Placebo. This is my choice. And we're going to do the album Placebo. Placebo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By Placebo. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a whole variety of interesting little uh, things will come up during that One of which relates to some tinnies that are sitting on the table uh-huh. in front of us Jeez <laughs> we'll, 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 I guess we'll, we'll just wait till we get to that point, will we? Oh no, that'll be right at the end That's though. right at the end, we should probably let the cat out of the bag It's, it's Scottish and Brian Moko is Scottish so, uh, Well, so yeah, Brian Moko's mum uh, is from Dundee Dundee, mm-hmm. Dundee. Brought ferry it really? That's where she lives. Or I don't know if she's still alive, street? but no. <laughs> I actually found it weirdly. I was doing the research and I was trying to find out more about because often if you if you look online, it always says Brian Moko's mother's from Dundee mm-hmm. and he lived in Dundee. But that's it. That's like the extent of the information you get. So I did a little bit of de- digging and I came across a Facebook post and uh, apparently somebody in that said his mother still his mother still lives still lives in in, in Broughty Ferry. So I didn't see anything about him living in Dundee. Uh, I wasn't aware of that being the case. I think he was born in Belgium, then he moved to Luxembourg, and then he went from Luxembourg to London. Yeah, well, he lived all over the place from what I could tell, but he does consider Dundee to be like his hometown, which is weird. Yeah, it's weird that you'd opt for that when you had so many other options. <laughs> <laughs> so, he was born in Brussels, for fuck's sake. <laughs> so, uh, talking about great Scottish exports, then, um, the eggs of Mrs. Moko, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> um, being one of them. And the other is surely Bar Soft Drinks, um, which some years ago now, to my surprise, seems to have acquired a brand called Tizer. Tizer, uh-huh. Tizer, Tizer, the appetizer? Mm-hmm. Is that how it, it used went? to be? It used to be it, yeah. Isa, the Tizer, the appetizer. Mm-hmm. And now it's uh, apparently the, the Great British, was it the Great British Pop? Is that what it is? 
pop. I fucking hate that word when yeah. it's used in relation to fizzy drinks, man. Which are placebo, the great British, but they're not the great British. Oh, pop. well, there you go. <laughs> that, that's, that's a nice little. I wish I'd thought of that. Aye, so great British pop, there you go. Tizer in honour of placebo, 55 calories a can. I can live with that, I suppose. So what, 14% of your daily allowance of sugar. <laughs> <laughs> what what flavour is this trying to be? Tizer. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be fruit flavoured. It tastes a little bit like um as if they've put, you know, that like uh dab dabs sherbet stuff in fizzy water maybe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um but I'm not sure what flavour it is, but then again that's a long tradition of bar yeah. drinks, uh because iron brew. Um yeah, so Tizer are bringing you this week's episode. I mean, we really should say there's other soft drinks out there because they don't sponsor us, but who fucking cares? I mean, I hope I hope bar sponsor us. After this, I could live with that. I mean, Barn have a very, very good reputation for ethical conduct. You know, mm-hmm. and a good number of soft drinks which are unappreciated, un- unsung. I think unsung soft yeah. drinks, spin-off the, podcast, the cream sodas, cream you sodas, know, good for pineapple aids. You know, know. it's not so great. Orange aids, lime aids, <laughs> <laughs> water aid. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so we're drinking Tizer, we'll see how that goes, if that has any adverse effects, and we're discussing the other great British pop, which is Placebo. Anything else we need to get the road before we, we dig right in? Yeah. Um, we've got new subs. Yeah, Daniel Rothwell, Welcome make yourself the, known. Welcome to the fold. Welcome to the fold. Um, he, he has uh, signed up on a annual plan, which you can do. If you go mm-hmm. to your Patreon, you, you can sign up monthly if you want. Mm-hmm. It's starting at four pounds, or four of your of your local currency, <laughs> uh, or you can do an annual subscription, which I believe gives you two months off mm-hmm. if you buy for the whole year. And who knows, um, you may occasionally get a wee present in your inbox. You may. Sometimes mistakes happen. (laughs) (laughs) Deliberate mistakes of kindness. Of course, yeah. Um, But uh, yeah, so that's an option for you. So go to patreon.com forward slash unsung pod and subscribe for a year at the minimum level if if that's how you want to live your life. If that's how you want to roll, do it. Um, Okay, placebo. I will take the lead since yes. I am the one that chose to subject us to this. Um, <laughs> How do you feel about that choice before we get into this? We had to cover them. I, think, up, I, th- yeah. I think they're a good band to, to talk about. And I think they're a band that are held in a deceptively large amount of affection by mm. a lot of people. It's, 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 it's a weird one. So Luigi, here's a good barometer, my, my <laughs> absentee flatmate. Uh, he, for example, is a very big fan of Placebo. And you wouldn't um, really think that. No, I would not think that. But then, you know, you, they just kind of pop up. There's a lot of people that seem to like this band. And they do sit in a weird place in music. Because I think we'll talk about it in here. But they were covered in Kerrang! despite being... You know, a kind of glam pop band, mm-hmm. and they they, they sh- pardon the the innuendo. They straddled mm-hmm. uh, a lot of things, a lot of people, <laughs> and um, a lot of genres uh, in their time. And uh, yeah, so I, I think they're they're definitely worth looking into in, in, in some detail. Uh, they were formed in 1994 in London. 1994 was quite a long time ago. Yeah, so uh, almost 30 years ago. That is the year that Kurt Cobain died. Yes. Uh, Are these br- things linked? Uh, there's definitely nods to it. Uh, Brian Mulko, as we said, born Belgian, Scottish mother and American dad. His mum's from Dundee. Uh, <laughs> I saw it written somewhere that she's a Catholic slash Jewish family. I'm not sure the relevance of that, but one of these fan forums said, oh, she was very religious and very disappointed in Brian's mm-hmm. choice of a, a lifestyle and profession. I don't know if that's true or not, mm-hmm. but fan forums, placebo are a band that excel on fan yes. forums, obsessive sort of audience in mm-hmm. that way. Um, mum and dad divorced when he was five and he moved with his mum to Luxembourg, uh, which I believe he thought was quite conservative and oppressive. Uh, then moved to London at 16 to try out in theatrical school. Uh, the other very uh, well-known or recognisable member of placebo is Stefan Olsdal, a Swedish, tall, elegant, quite quiet bassist. I I don't know if I've ever seen the guy is speaking in interviews. Um, also moved to London, I think about that time, slightly younger than Brian Mogul. 
And uh, apocryphally, they uh, they had a conversation on the London Underground about music that mm. sort of led to this band. Um, Apparently, they went to school together in Luxembourg. Did they? And they never, they never, never spoke to each other. Didn't know each other. Weird, didn't it? Well, that's interesting. Yeah. The drummer, the original drummer, also Swedish, uh, was Robert Schultzberg. He was he served from ninety four to ninety six. Left uh, in kind of acrimonious circumstances, uh, mainly relating to his relationship with Brian. I think I uh, was replaced by a guy called Steve Hewitt. Uh, from 96 to 2007 Who's a drummer that most people know uh, In relation to placebo I think um, uh, Is he American? No, is he American? I think he's American, yeah American mm. maybe uh, the band- He's English, sorry He's English, mm-hmm. is he? Right, okay The uh, band is very much uh, regarded as being a British band Because they formed in London I did read that apparently they were previously named Ashtray Hart mm-hmm. Although I think Brian Mulco had said that they also had other names uh, That wasn't the original one uh, their first ever gig was in uh, somewhere around about Covent Garden in 1995, January of 95, and that same year they ended up touring with Whale, who I think were a Swedish band, and Bush, who we, we know quite well on this podcast. <laughs> For our sins. <laughs> they, uh, they played a thing called Unsigned in the City at the Hacienda in Manchester, uh, I think it was in 95 as well. Unsigned in the City was a sort of industry event and a battle of the bands that had been set up by Anthony Wilson, the founder of Factory Records, and his partner, Yvette Livesey. Placebo that year ended up sharing the best band title with a band whose name I can't remember. It's like a one-word name and Cooler Shaker. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, who Moko said quote they hated ever since um, <laughs> that competition was actually broadcast on TV at the time uh, along with things like the judging panels comments and oh, interviews really? yeah, yeah. Um, well I'll cut in some footage mm. of them on it now Was that before the Hacienda exploded? I mean, you know, was, that, was it a race from the face maybe, of the earth? <laughs> maybe they just tried to get on with it while that was happening, I don't know. <laughs> um, other folk that actually played that Unsigned in the City event as a way to sort of break the band in the UK, uh, Radiohead, Foo Fighters, Bjork, Smashing Pumpkins, Coldplay, Oasis, Suede, who'll come back a bit later, uh, Muse, uh, The Verve, Ash, Elastica, Daft Punk, Chemical Brothers and a little known classic Welsh rock band called Stereophonics. How the fuck, man? That's yeah, insane. It, just because it's an industry thing, I think it was seen as just being a stepping stone or this band's going to be big, so they're doing this event. Yeah, now, as if to underline their British cred- credentials, uh, Placebo won the best new British band 1997 at the Kerrang Awards, but they're also a band who, and I've noticed this as well in my travels with our, with our music, uh, they're really big in Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, France in particular But also places like Germany They seem to have a really strong following there Because they've got a really strong European flavour yeah. to them My friend uh, Jason uh, Friend of the pod Guitarist of my band uh, he's, He told me they were fucking huge in Greece as well And he, he is a fan of the band And he they played Greece a lot And he said they were absolutely, they were absolutely massive in Greece as well So yeah, all over Europe I think it's just Yeah, I can quite believe it Yeah, mm-hmm. to, to, I mean, but They started in 94 The album we're going to talk about today The, the eponymous debut was 1996 And they sort of started to really break 97, 98, 99 mm-hmm. Where they were making big waves To give a bit of context uh, from We've done the Britpop mixtape uh, Go back and listen to that actually I can't remember if we mentioned Placebo I think we gave them a passing mention mm-hmm. But we also said that they were sort of somewhere They're you know, not really a Britpop, Britpop band yeah. Yeah. Uh, But that was a, that was sort of the context That they were coming up against So 1992 was when the likes of Suede And all that sort of came out The first, the first bands of that movement But it was really peaking after that It was in 94, 95, Oasis Things like that were cresting So UK Britpop at the time Was sort of quite backwards facing You know they were embracing stuff like Small Faces And the Kinks and the Beatles a lot You had Blur V Oasis You had bands like Shed 7, Ocean Colour Scene 
uh, Sleeper, Menswear, that fashion band that just kind of popped up and disappeared. Um, yeah, Britpop was very infatuated with retro, whereas Placebo were kind of in contrast to that. In fact, it's interesting uh, that Nancy Boy, the song that Placebo are, uh, for a lot of people, best known uh, for, is a bit of a reaction to the likes of the band Suede in particular and the singer Brett Anderson. And the Brett Anderson's whole shtick was that he was very lithe and sort of androgynous and his movements were quite serpentine, it was all quite sexual and he's a pretty boy. Um, but that whole androgyny thing that he put across, I think Molko in particular found to be quite insincere. I think there's a suede lyric that goes something like, we kiss in his room to a popular tune. And all these allusions to sort of like homosexuality or bisexuality and fluid sexuality and things. Um, but Anderson also kind of became well known for a quote that he made in an interview that then got shared about a lot I'm a bisexual man who never had a homosexual experience. And what does quite, that mean, Brett, for fuck's sake? Come uh, on. <laughs> well, uh, that means that he wants more record sales and more money <laughs> and more notoriety. Um, Brian Molko described that, I think it was the phrase he used was sexual tourism in the, in the context of just like commercial opportunism. I think Lord Brian's a, a legitimately bisexual man, do you know what I mean? Um, and has always been. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can see how that would rile him. Uh, Placebo, as we said, had crossover appeal, unlike those Britpop acts. You didn't see Suede and Kerrang, you didn't see even Elastica. I mean, Alaska might, might possibly, but I doubt it. Very, very few of those bands made it into the pages mm. of Kerrang at that time. Well, they're, Mo- more, they're definitely a rock band, right? I mean, that's the, that's the thing, the key differentiator, of, I think, as the bands were rising in that period, they were a rock band. Yeah, well, in contrast to, you know, Small Faces and Rolling Stones and all those kind of backwards-facing influences, Moko was in... Well, to some extent backwards racing but he was influenced by the likes of PJ Harvey's Sonic Youth Pixies Nirvana Pesh Mode some older glam stuff like Bowie and T-Rex he had the Pesh Mode stuff like Joy Division which had a darker kind of feel to it a bit gothier a bit sexier um, I think he made a comment uh, we didn't grow up here so we don't share the same vocabulary we never listened to any of the groups that bands like Ocean Colour Scene listened to so I said I'm So they they just had a distinct aesthetic and actually at that time as somebody who got really into placebo right from the very their very first appearance I think on British TV uh, it was really refreshing mm. really refreshing they had a lot of big breaks though they're a band that really I don't want to say silver spoon but from a very early stage they got every break going uh, I mean we mentioned the 1995 tour with uh, Whale that Hobo Hump and Slobo Babe band And uh, Bush, that uh, Better Than Silverchair mm-hmm. band. Um, that's massive for effectively your first year. That's crazy. Um, the Unsigned in the City thing on TV, of course, as we mentioned, by February 1996. And I'm not quite sure how this connection came about, but they were invited by David Bowie to replace Morrissey on a handful of European shows. So, And, and that's prior to their mm. first album. Um, I know Bowie had heard them. Like he he that he'd actually heard them and he liked them and because that, that obviously that relationship lasted for a long time. Yeah, between it did. Them, it's know? just I don't quite know how the first connection happened there though. Um, I couldn't trace that back. But they they went for playing like clubs of a, a couple of hundred people to playing twenty thousand seater stadia and uh, arenas. He stayed friends with Bowie, as you say. He collaborated with him. He's actually on the track "Without You, I'm Nothing," the the, the re-recorded version of it. Uh, Story behind that's pretty cool. Well, we'll come back to that when we get onto that album. Um, there's some cool backstage footage kicking about of them goofing around before shows. You know, Brian Mock was sitting there playing a guitar as David Bowie's getting his stuff ready. Um, Can you imagine? <laughs> it's really, really odd, isn't it? But yeah, so the the band had a lot of very good fortune in those early years, um, and the, the list of tours and appearances they made is. Kind of the stuff of Faustian pacts, you know mm. what I mean? 
I mean, it sounds like it's from what I could tell. It seems like they just they also just toured like they did nothing but play shows. You know what I mean? They, I mean, they were only a band for a very short period of time and they're getting that shit. But I guess we've spoken about it before and in these kind of eras when you know if a band is good and here our person hears them and they're actually putting in the hard work, then that can often just be in, in this particular era just enough to go. Maybe we should give those guys a look in because they sound different and they look different. You know, they've got a whole different appeal, vibe. Yeah, well, the, the look attracted controversy as well mm-hmm. at that time. It's it's really interesting to think about the backdrop of British rock and British pop. We'll get to that in a second. Just in terms of dealing with that sudden success, though, it became another part of the, the placebo picture because uh, here's, a, here's a quote for Brian Moko that maybe explains it. Um, we had this feeling of immense disbelief as if we were naughty school children and had fooled everyone and were about to be found out at any minute. Mm-hmm. So we embraced the rock and roll lifestyle with immense enthusiasm, as I think every young band should. So from early 97 onwards, as they exploded, they engaged big time with that lifestyle um, a six month tour was basically fueled by drugs and copious sex as Moko said to NME in an interview as well we'd left a trail of blood and spunk across the country mm-hmm. he also as you can probably tell from this embraced the opportunity to speak candidly in interviews and he was much sought after by the press due to his tendency to give good sound bites but that was also partly due to his willingness to criticise uh, to offend and generally be a bit of a handful as I understand it, especially for his label's PR people. To, to illustrate, he ended up with multiple broken ribs after a special Brit Awards event uh, with Spice Girls because at some point during the after party when he was totally bombed out his mind, uh, he was thrown across the room for openly insulting another musician's wife. Mm-hmm. By the way, I was on the fan boards trying to find out who that other musician was. I don't know. I would love to know if anybody has an inside scoop on that. And And to be fair to him, he seemed to agree that he probably sort of deserved it uh, due to the the put down being pretty extreme. Um, but yeah, the other big part of the the tapestry of placebo, I think, is uh, LGBT uh, plus mm-hmm. roles and the part they played in that. They they've always enjoyed, as far as I can tell, a strong following amongst members of the LGBT plus scene, and I would suspect they were significant figures in the lives of young, questioning, curious music fans in, in the mid to late nineties and beyond. I mean, clearly, as to confessed uh, straight white males presenting a podcast on music, there's only so many topics we can speak on authoritatively. We are blinkered, mate. Yeah, we are somewhat <laughs> blinkered. Um, but uh, we did hear from uh, one of our regular listeners and contributors, Catalyze. Uh, Catalyze is a musician and promoter in, in Canada now, actually, originally from the UK. And she gives us a little bit of insight into what Placebo represented uh, culturally for people in the LGBTQ community at that time, as well as just her impressions of the band. So I'll read a wee bit of what she sent to us. Okay? Mm. Placebo hit at the right time for me and my friends. The first album came out when we were around 15, moving out of young teen years and into the stage where we were starting to become more independent and getting into first relationships. I wasn't a huge fan, but I liked them and I owned the first two albums and played them a fair bit. They were one of those bands that were always on and provided a kind of soundtrack to the era. The second album came out when we were all around 17, a time of self-discovery along with angst. The music has a constant melancholy to it, but also can be really uplifting at times. Subjects are pretty dark, a lot of sex, drugs, misery, all stuff we were at the edges of, so I think it really appealed. The band are about eight years older than me and my friends, so it was like they were living the next step. This could easily be us in a few years, or so we imagined. Being from the UK, the band maybe felt more accessible than the others we were into. We'd all been Nirvana fans, and they had, I think, some of the qualities that we had liked in grunge, Nirvana. Uh, It was made for outsiders. Kurt was pretty frequently seen in the later years wearing dresses under eyeliner, Uh, but with him it felt like a small part of his personality, like he was playing around to make a point. Whereas with Placebo, it felt like it was fully them. This pretty effeminate bi guy singing and playing guitar, often people questioning whether it was a man or a woman. The term gender bending was used a lot. Uh, we lacked the vocabulary of current times, but the concepts were still the same, I think. And the bass player was gay. This didn't feel like it was making a point, just them being themselves. For queer outsider kids in rural England, this was really significant. One of my close friends at the time took to wearing eyeliner and painting his nails, and I think feeling okay to just try out ways of presenting himself. He was a huge fan. I had my own queer idols, but Placebo did definitely still provide a sense of belonging, and I think it was my introduction to the idea of androgyny. But I know there had been other musicians, Bowie played with it, but they were before my time. I was comfortable being gay and had female influences people I admired, but thinking about it, 
Brian was probably a big part of me being comfortable with the idea of androgyny. Looking back, I think it's probably hard to overstate the impact they had on a certain type of kid at that time. The music captured the time, for sure, and an energy. It was dark and felt edgy and intoxicating. It was very queer. And I think, in- encouragingly, I think that's really close to the take I imagined, you know, putting ourselves into that, that, that headspace. And that, that, that is how they came across. You know, that really is what it seemed to represent. It seemed to be energising mm-hmm. for the people around us that maybe just lacked that little bit of encouragement to, you know, as Kat says, start putting on a bit of nail varnish, start messing about with makeup. To also just experiment with androgyny and not fitting into boxes. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think they were really, really significant uh, in, in a cultural capacity. And they really were kind of carrying that can by themselves. Mm-hmm. There was a few kind of glam rock bands like Rachel Stamp and stuff that came along after that, but it wasn't really the same. There wasn't that sense of authentic queerdom, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever, is a, is, is a useful label. I suppose on the other side of the pond, we had Marlon Manson who was doing something vaguely similar, which feels really weird to say now given everything that's happened with him and everything we know about him over the past decade, you know. Even after reading his book, to be fair, which was about the era that placebo were coming up, when, you know, that all happened during Anti Christ Superstar, which was 1996. So, yeah, I can see how that would be quite vital for a lot of, a, a, a total eye-opening experience for people who are maybe feeling a bit unsure about themselves and what, what to do, because all media is, is not giving them the vocabulary to, to actually, you know, express and... Mm-hmm. And even like formulate thoughts on on the. They were kind of pioneers, yeah. And, and I mean, like the, the the whole like vanguard of that movement. They were pioneers in terms of trying to work out ways to even articulate these exactly, identities yeah. and mm-hmm. thoughts and expressions and and set the tone for the generations that would come after them. Yeah, if you're a teenager in the mid nineties and all you're getting is like fucking lads mags, like you said earlier on, and and Britpop, then. If you if you feel it if you're gay or if you or if you feel like you're in the wrong gender, for example, then what the fuck like that you just need to internalize that and deal with that until something in the media space becomes big enough mm-hmm. for you to latch onto and go, oh by the way, that's interesting. I actually think that there might be something there for me that that I identify with. You mm-hmm. know, um, the manic said a little bit of it in terms of the, the fucking eyeliner spray paint, right? That was yeah, a, that's they're probably a big closer, glam, a big glam. That's thing. closer to the Rachel Stamp type yeah. side of mm-hmm. it. You know what I mean? But they were always, they were never obviously gay, but clearly there was a space for for people like that. Important, culturally important, probably more so than we even realise. My first time I've seen them play, they played in a show called The White Room. I genuinely couldn't tell at first glance, male or female. Um, Although I will concede that does seem strange in hindsight. Having gone back to it now, it seems obvious, but I do remember at the time... He described wanting to use that androgyny and their cross-dressing and their makeup and things to, to challenge, quote, homophobia in the music scene, largely, as he put it, via making guys who turned up at the show fancy him before realising he wasn't female and then hopefully provoking a bit of soul-searching in them. Um it's optimistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that a lot of guys might have been confused by that, but I would suspect it would probably just be angry and lash out rather than get too uh, introspective, but... Maybe I'm just being pessimistic. Um, cross-dressing, as he described, it was not just a branding decision, but a political act. Um, so the dresses and the makeup on stage, the slight frame, the high vocal, they all kind of made that quite an easy thing for him to achieve and something that he really leaned into. Mm-hmm. That uh, that performance I'm talking about, in fact, uh, The White Room, it was in 1996, it was hosted by Mark Radcliffe, who introduces the band with the words... Is it a bloke? Is it a girl? I'll give you a clue. His name is Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, clearly, uh, as regards uh, LGBTQ plus issues, we're not particularly in any position to speak out with any authority. It's a more complex issue than we can do justice. But it, I also don't want to overlook it. It's a big part of this band's story. Um, there are certainly, for people in the know, bound to be more niche early pioneers. But I would suggest, as regards the mainstream, the British glam movement and beyond it had produced camp idols, you know, David Bowie, Mark Bolan, Boy George, Mark Amond, Jimmy Somerville, Frankie Goes to Hollywood were a big one, really provocative as well. Um, you had people with 
for want of a better phrase, gay credentials for Miles, you know, George Michael, for mm-hmm. example. But he didn't cross-dress and th- there weren't so many people that were flamboyant in a rock context. I mean, obviously, the stadium rock had hints of gender bending. I mean, even Led Zeppelin and The Cure did that. But especially, for example, in the case of Led Zeppelin, it, it was largely kind of couched in sort of their notorious heterosexual appetites. So it was kind of safe mm. to sort of gender bend and wear blouses and have long hair and bangles and stuff because the whole point was that they were mad shaggers and that they were quite comfortable in that, you know. Um Freddie Mercury, obviously, big figure on the, the, the rock scene, yeah. but a gay icon, but also approached that image in a really different way, at least largely up until uh, I Want to Break Free, which mm-hmm. obviously attracted notoriety because of the cross-dressing in the video. But it's it's key to sort of mention that as well, and we, I think we talk about this quite a bit in that uh, Britpop mixtape, that during the early 90s, there was a bit of a masculine resurgence. So along with that Britpop explosion, there was a kind of return to conventional va- values, that kind of red, white and blue, mm-hmm. oh, right, fuck you, oh, right, that kind of thing came back. You know, bands like... I, I, I don't want to put this at the door of Oasis. You know, Oasis were not hostile to campness or openly homophobic certainly that I'm aware of yet along with them did come a kind of laddish movement and it was bolstered by things like Guy Ritchie movies and fucking Vinnie Jones being brought into the kind of artistic mainstream and FHM magazine and GQ magazine and all these female musicians getting slapped on the front of these covers and bikinis and th- there was a there was a massive like resurgence of that over here which yeah. I think is quite interesting because at the same time Across the Atlantic, there was quite a movement against that. You know, I mean, Nirvana had made a point across dressing on stage and kissing each other with, you know, big open mouth, dirty kisses on primetime TV. And you had people like Marilyn Manson coming through who were quite subversive. There was a lot of gender bending in that. The goth and the hard rock scene over there had a, quite a few sexually ambiguous or openly gay figureheads. In the UK cultural context at the time, it wasn't really like that. I mean, the, the, there, were, there were a few probably largely outside of music, I would say Eddie Izzard and Julian Clary were about two of the most overt and willing to be sort of uncomfortable fare mm. for that kind of masculine mainstream. You know, Eddie Izzard would still incur a bit of like, uh, who's, who's this bloke then? Who's he got fucking nail varnish on for? And Julian Clary reveled in that. That was Julian Clary's whole thing and that he would come back with these really witty put downs for people. Placebo still really stood out in that context over here at that time. We didn't have much... It was really as progressive as a lot of the American stuff that I'm aware of. Um, as I say, we're not an authority in that, but I do really want to try and, at least in my perception as a young person at that time, being really aware of it. Oh, this is refreshing, and this is somebody pushing back against all this macho football fucking guy Ritchie gangster mobster fucking shite that was just mm-hmm. ubiquitous in Britain. Yeah. And they continue to do that even right into the new metal mainstream bit as well, which mm-hmm. we'll come to when we do black market music. I mean, it's probably less less evident now. They're still possible, right? But they're now much older men. Um, yeah, I mean, they've kind of stood still, and mm. I think the world has moved around them. And they do they, in in that respect, gender wise, that they, they they're certainly far less subversive now, mm-hmm. simply because things have moved on, or at least whether or not it's temporary or permanent, I don't know. But uh, yeah, we're quite a bit on from that early nineties lad mag thing. I mean, even just the lad mags. Mm-hmm. Where the fuck are the lad mags now? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and that, that forms a lot of the context of this band. Um, just maybe before we just dip into the discography, just to take the temperature here. As I say, I mean, the first time I saw them, 96, I was 15 years old. And I, I found them a really exciting band to watch. They played two tracks in a show called The White Room. I think, actually, I don't, I don't know if it was the same episode, but PJ Harvey, I'd seen her on that as well. And I'd, I was really blown away by it. They were a good live band. That made a difference as well. I mean, obviously they did well in that competition. But they had songs that really chimed to me at that time. They had a look that was really refreshing and unusual. But they also could really play. And I really I really appreciated them. I really warmed to them very, very quickly. I mean, you would have been a fair bit younger than me at that time. But even in the early years of Placebo, do you remember anything of them? Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I guess I really came into them with a bit of end. Reminds me of the second time That I followed you home 
because it was all over Crying TV at the time, which is, I think, 2000 and... Well, actually, no, like, um, Slave to the Wage, I remember hearing that on the radio um, into around about 2000 and thinking, that sounds weird, what is that? And then, as I was getting more into kind of Marlon Manson and stuff like that, there was always the rumours kicking about that him, him and Brian, and Marlon Manson and Brian, and maybe had a thing at some point. I guess there was a lot of that kind of shit kicking about in the media. And maybe they played up to it. I can't quite remember, but I do remember it being a thing that was spoken about. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not true. I don't know. But um, titillating, though, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I remember hearing the bitter end. I've seen the bitter end on Crank TV and thinking. Okay, I've heard about this band and some of the people that I know who were really in it, who were really into indie at that time like fucking loved Placebo thought they were great you know always raving about that first album the one they were doing yeah so I had heard them and then explored some of their singles and you know Nancy Boy I think is a fucking like a great tune from that era mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the singles that, that they did over the first four uh, uh, first four records are fucking great but I never they never really grabbed me hard enough for me to actually go and like look at an album mm-hmm. I thought that anyway, but it turns out I'd actually heard quite a few of their tunes across the albums. Well, I think like, somehow your first impression of this band when I suggested it was they're a singles band, that's mm. that's my understanding. And I would actually broadly still agree with it. I think they are very much a singles band. And the thing with most singles bands is that you actually end up realising that you've heard a lot more of them than you actually probably thought you had mm-hmm. in the first place. I also think, and I don't think it's controversial to say this, but if you were to make a... Now, that's what I call... British 90s rock compilation Placebo would be on it Nancy Boy would be on it It was one of the iconic songs of that era You know, it's up there along with All Right Time by Supergrass Mm. And if I can take your pick The Verve's Lucky Man Or Bittersweet Symphony or something like that You know, like it's it was one of the key songs of that era And it was, yeah It was a big breakthrough breakthrough tune Albeit sounding really quite different to to the zeitgeist Yeah the discography, we'll, we'll kind of we'll skim through this. They have a, they have a lot of stuff, and spoiler alert, it's of increasing irrelevance to <laughs> to not just my personal tastes, but I just think the world in general musically. <laughs> I'll, I'll make that case uh, yeah. as we go on. We are talking about the debut, but before the debut, their first ever release was a split single in Fierce Panda. It's a song Bruce Pristine, which would appear on the debut album. And it was kind of uh, split with a band called Soup. I don't know if you heard the Soup song. Uh, I'll cut it in. No. Basically, a kind of psychedelic grunge band or something. You know, very, very 90s thing. Um, Fierce Panda was a cool little label at that time. I liked a lot of stuff they put out. Uh, They followed that with the Come Home EP. Come Home would be re-recorded for this debut album as well, Uh, so cutting some of this original version, it's quite similar that was on Deceptive Records in 96 and that actually gained the attention of Hut Recordings and Hut Recordings were a subsidiary of Virgin Records who would go on to help release their stuff this early version of Come Home has a much more prominent bass line and it actually was the first time that it let me hear after years of listening to Placebo and especially this early stuff, first time I've ever noticed what Stefan's actually doing in the verse Mm. and it's fucking weird (laughs) it's a really odd bass line that he's doing Um, but yeah there you go Uh, every day's a school day so then 96 the self-titled album came out We'll come back to that in some detail. 1999, Without You, I'm Nothing. And this is when, at least from my perspective, Placebo exploded. Nancy Boy was a hit. And it had all the potential to just be a one-hit wonder. We didn't really know what was going to become of this band. There were a lot of bands like the Wanna Dies, you know, with You and Me song, and mm-hmm. bands like Whale and stuff who'd had a breakthrough hit and then hadn't really followed up to the same extent. 
without you I'm nothing took placebo out of potential one hit wonder status you know it was big this was the record that broke them stateside as well mm-hmm. there's so many good tunes in this album yeah um, I, I'm, I'm not surprised that it landed so big yeah just to correct you it was 12th of October 1998 was it I actually thought it was 99 so that just shows you a pretty interesting record you start to get darker bring in more synths there's obviously hints of it in the first record well um, there's there's hints of it kind of well, we'll maybe talk about this when we're talking about the first record after the first record came out there was a couple of bit. there was a track that was redone and then there were B-sides and they started to get a little bit more sophisticated quite quickly mm-hmm. and then that all sort of matured for this album but yeah you're right you could tell they were already, already showing the first signs of breaking out of that mm-hmm. um, I mean this kicks off with Pure Morning uh, which is another huge song for Class that band song. yeah mm-hmm. this, this matched Nancy Boy in terms of reaching number 4 in the UK charts It's, it's Led Zeppelin drums It's I would call this industrial pop And I think actually we've used This as an example of that genre In reference to other records that we've covered um, Maybe Millionaire and stuff mm-hmm. like that as well uh, The song itself is about the come down And sort of that phenomenon of walking home From a late, late, late club mm-hmm. As people are going to work in the morning uh, The lyrics I've seen in, uh, compared to Lou Reed By a few people When you actually yeah, just see the lyrics to that song Yeah he does But he's, I've seen them compared to Lou yeah. Reed's stuff um, He said that those lyrics Just came off the top of his head in the studio But did point out that Quote I'm feeling supersonic Give me gin and tonic It's not exa- <laughs> it's not exactly that bad But it is in that vein So yeah, yeah. He, really, he really doesn't like his lyrics for Pure Morning I think, he stopped pl- I think they stopped playing it for at least a decade they If did. not longer It got yeah. phased out of their sets uh, Barring some kind of anniversary Performances and appearances um, The thing is The thing with this album This isn't just a singles album And that's, that's why this album is so strong Unlike a lot of their other stuff The second track in it Brick Shit House I always loved this tune Razor sharp guitars, loads of energy. It's, it's almost like a pop version of Territorial Pissings yeah, or something. It's a good like that. song, that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's something. Some really unlike the kind of later high energy tunes. You know, they they did high energy stuff in later albums, but they forgot to put in the melody and the hooks that mm-hmm. they have in this one as well. Uh, the, the third track, "You Don't Care About Us," number five in the UK charts, really famous placebo song, certainly amongst their fans, but also I would say had a fair bit of breakthrough. I used to like it more I'll say I think it's been Played to death a bit now though They started to get Interesting on this one The fourth track in it Is called Ask for Answers And it's a totally fine Pacer track But it is something That they do repeatedly Later on When they try to get All sensitive Mm-hmm. This particular song just has a bit more depth than some of the later attempts and later albums at being nuanced and moody and deep. Um, it's got better changes and maybe better dynamics. And plus, I think this is key. This one got there first. Yeah. So even though perhaps pound for pound or you know Pepsi Challenge, you could say some of the later attempts at a similar style are maybe just as good. They are ultimately more of that thing. This is the one that came first, and I don't think the. This is one of the things they had certain good ideas and they just sought to replicate them rather than than progressing to, to new things. Yeah, I think um, the next song is probably my favourite placebo song. Is it? Yeah, without you, I'm nothing. First heard the David Bowie version, somebody played it for me and I didn't know it was a single. Strange infatuation seems to grace the evening tide. I'll take it by your side. Um, 
Um, I think it's a really weird fucking single. I mean, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a sing- weird single. Yeah. So the, as a single, I think it's just a flex. I'll be honest with you. I, I think when they re-recorded it to include David Bowie and then brought it out as a single, apparently it was a boy's request. By the way, that yeah, he, he, he was on it. Yeah, he phoned up and said, "I've written a harmony and vocal. Let's do it." And they were like, "Okay." Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't say no to David Bowie. <laughs> you? No, you wouldn't. Um, it's a very downbeat, sombre tune for a single. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was ever going to chart well, but I think it is a way of saying, oh, by the way, we've just done a song with David Bowie. In fact, we're so proud of that fact that we're going to just make it a single so you can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's a decent song in the context of the album. I never really loved it. One thing Placebo were really good at, uh, probably up until Battle for the Sun, is like... like <laughs> tell there's, yeah. there's going to be an interesting thing happening later on. No, no, I just mean like, the one thing they were really good at, which they stopped doing, I think they've stopped doing it entirely now, is like they had this aching melancholic thing going on always in their chord progressions and, and, and melodic choices. And I think this is a really good example of that because it's got that clanging single guitar and it is a really almost shoegazy in, in, in pace. Yeah. You know? There's just something really raw about it, which, but even though it's not a raw sounding song, it just, I don't know, it just speaks to me in a way that only really placebo songs do, and I don't even like placebo that much, but it's just got a weird tension to it, mm-hmm. which I quite like, and I the know, best I mean, placebo songs have that. It's well done, and the fact mm-hmm. that Boy picked it out shows that he obviously rated it really highly as well. Um, I really like the sixth track in this, it's an album track, if you will, but uh, Allergic to Thoughts of Mother Earth. First of all, the title really reminds me of Melancholy Era Smashing Pumpkins. Mm-hmm. And I think actually the kind of big, exuberant, stomping pop of it, where these Billy Corgan-esque guitar tones just compounds that impression. I love that song. Um, frankly, I think that song's probably a better single than most of the singles they released from 2001 onwards. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the album just keeps going. I mean, Every You and Every Me, number 11 in the UK charts. Another really, great song. Really man. well-known yeah. placebo song. Bit played out for me. Appeared in Cruel Intentions, which was a big cult movie mm-hmm. uh, back back just at the turn of the, the millennium. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Reese Witherspoon, Ryan Philippe, I think, and Selma Blair. Um, and, and I think maybe the appearance in that film is also why the plays, the online plays of that song, make it their, 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 their most mm-hmm. streamed. Alongside, by the way, their cover of Running Up That Hill. And again, that's another track that uh, both theirs and the original have recently enjoyed a kind of a big boost thanks yeah. to the big screen. And if I only could. Um, I do also want to just add the final mention for the track Burger Queen, the twelfth mm. one, which makes a joke about Luxembourger Queen. Obviously, yeah. it's from Luxembourg. Makes no sense at all. Things aren't what they seem. Makes no sense. It's worth a mention just for its understated charm. I think that's a lovely wee post-coital closer to that record. Mm-hmm. It's it's a dreamier version of All Apologies from In yeah. Utero. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a really nice little song. So you know that Brian Molko has twice done Rank Your Records or, or Rank Your Albums or whatever it is with Vice. Did it in 2009, did it again in 2016. Oh, really? Eh? For 20th anniversary of the band. <laughs> it did change. In 2009, he said this was our best record. Uh, and in 2016, he said it was our sixth best record out of eight. What? Yeah. And his opinion is... He's just, is can I just... Was that the second one that he, he demoted at six yeah. places? Yeah. Uh. 
I can tell what's going to happen straight away here, but sorry, carry on. Yeah, I mean, as Gene, it's exactly what always happens with this shit, right? But um, for him, the thing he says is about it is, and I think it's on a Wikipedia page, so you can read about it yourself if you don't want to go and find the article. But it's like they just had a really bad time with producers, so he's, I think he's got a lot of negative memories of just that record itself. Is it by the end of them they weren't really talking or something? Yeah, well, he says in the interview that, or and the thing is like we weren't really, he wasn't really, we weren't really talkative to begin with, and that just kind of broke down further and further as we went in the process. What we would do is we'd finish our songs. And when we were done our songs for whatever we were doing that day, we would just have a party in the studio. And there was obviously a lot of drugs involved and stuff as well. And I think they maybe just rubbed each other up the wrong way. Pure Morning was recorded in a different studio at a different time. It was originally supposed to be a B-side, but they thought, this is a really good song. We fucking love it. We'll put it out as a single and put it on the record. And he said it's the best song on the album. It wasn't even recorded by Steve Osborne, who was the producer. And so that, it kind of really sums it up. And yeah, they said the boy thing was quite insane when that happened as well. He just phoned him up and said, I love, I love this song, can we do a version of it? Which I think is pretty sweet. And Evil Dildo talks about um, like the voices in the track are actual death threats that he was left. Oh, really? In his voicemail, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, That's a nice touch. And he just, he, to him, it's like, well, I've arrived, I'm pissing somebody off, so I must have made it. Which is <laughs> quite a cool quite a cool way of looking at it. Um, that thing you're talking about with the demotion, though, we'll talk about this a wee bit later on as well, but that gives you an insight into this sort of inner monologue that musicians have where their most recent music is somehow they have to convince themselves that they're still relevant. Oh my god, I've I've produced at least multiple albums that are better than my the best album that everyone agrees on is my best album. Mm-hmm. It's just it's really frustrating when it's they're so out of touch with it and you can mm-hmm. tell that they're almost trying to will it into reality. It's yeah. like they're like, by the way, this is my sixth best album. You're just wrong. You're would you fucking gaslight you into thinking that the album you like, no, that's not that good. The mm-hmm. best album is the one I just did. That's a great album. I mean that's fucking it's like late period fucking Mark Knopfler trying to tell yeah. you that's that's his best work. You it know? doesn't quite go that way in this, and we'll go. I'll go through it as you go through the, as you go through the records. I'll I'll, I'll talk, tell you what he ranks them. Um, good, but well, it's quite interesting. Good because I am sort of projecting from a lot of what they've done in recent years that there is definitely a strong element of them just mind fucking themselves into thinking that what they're doing is somehow still up there mm-hmm. with, with what they used to do um, 2000 they brought out black market music borderline in schizo and guaranteed to cause a fuss I was never loyal except to my own pleasure so Number one album in France so Again that kind of European dominance thing Starting to set in Number six in the UK um, The US release to this is actually a bit different uh, It includes the Bowie version of Without You I'm Nothing on it And it also includes a cover of Depeche Mode's I Feel You Um, in 2001, uh, Moko had said that the band were delighted with this album uh, because it perfectly combined their debut's, quote, rough punk pop with the, quote, melancholy side mm-hmm. of Without You, I'm Nothing. By 2016, <laughs> he's recanted, calling it real sombre and wishing he'd taken on a bigger role during production. Yeah, I mean, he says this is this is his least favourite album of theirs. He thinks that it just suffers from having a blanket sound, which means that it just feels as though it all sounds the same like production wise it just to him it just doesn't stand out and I think it were his words um, the record doesn't conjure up a sense of euphoria which is when you think about an album even if it, even if the album itself isn't euphoric the process of making it should at least you know or you should have good memory associated to making it which he doesn't have it took him nine months to record this because we were so fucked in drugs you know what I mean well. <laughs> like I think this is a, probably a bad time for them personally <laughs> But he, he says it's quite a monochrome record. It's got a very deep, it feels like a very deep wood colour with stripes of gunmetal grey whenever I picture it in my head. This album has one aspect that you simply can't overlook it. It's mm. like a class photo where one of the kids has three eyes. You yeah. know what I mean? It's mm. just like, you cannot fucking pretend that it's not there. We'll get to that. Um, the track one, Tasting Men. And again, trying to do the industrial pop thing, but it's a bit darker than Pure Morning this mm-hmm. time. I don't really see the appeal in this tune. Uh, I think it's a strange single. I mean, it's still, a very strange single. It made it to number sixteen in the UK charts, but it's dead fucking negative as a bit of music. I'm surprised yeah. at that. I That's think it might be the pure anticipation of them bringing out another record that got it there. I don't think it's their own merit. 
he said in interviews more recently is like whenever they go to create a record it's always like a complete reaction against the last thing that they did that's the way that he's always thought about it which I guess makes sense that you release I think something I stupid as a, as a mantra but yeah but <laughs> it makes sense when you think about Taste of Men as being your first single or Slave to the Wage both of those are really weird singles um, Slave to the Wage is dead repetitive and I, stuff, I can understand you know, it, we'll get to that, yeah. that one but um, Special K I think it's a fucking great song, man. Great song. Yeah. Um, it kind of had the legs kicked out from under it, though, by the fact that it couldn't get on British radio because of the, it's about ketamine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so without radio support over here, it didn't get the sort of profile that I think it probably would have got because it's, it's one of their best songs overall, objectively. Really great chorus on it. I will say that the snare drum on it sounds a bit amateurish to me. Mm-hmm. I, they went for a weird tone and it just sounds slightly demo-y. Uh, here we are. Here's the three-eyed kid in the classroom. Spite and Malice. Terrible the song, fourth man. track. Is the most hilariously bad song they've ever released. Mm. It is a fucking redneck, thirsty, graspy misstep. Yeah. This is deliberately uh, their, their version of doing what Limp Bizkit were doing, essentially. And he said that at the time, and he said that again it more It actually recently. makes Linkin Park sound amazing. Yeah, and, he's, <laughs> and he says in that, in that interview, he's like, it's got a one-of-a-kind vibe as opposed to this really aggressive macho bullshit that was really popular at the time. So I'm sure that influenced the decision to make it a foray into alternative hip-hop. I'm not sure how successful it was, but at least, I suppose, we had the balls to do it. Okay, mm. fair enough, mate. The balls? You mean yeah. stupidity? Yeah. yeah. I think the, the, the MC on it is from... Justin Warfield. Yeah, it's from One Inch Punch and something else, um, but it's fucking whack. It's fucking shit, man. <laughs> it's really shit. Um, the sixth track, Black Eyed, uh, became mildly iconic for them. It's, it's, it's a really distinct sound, that tune. I'm forever black eyed, a product of a broken home. It's not, it's not the most outstanding piece of music, uh, mainly because I think the chorus really lets the song down, but it's, it's, it's an interesting one. Track 8, Slave to the Wage, you mentioned it already. By the way, it features a pavement sample. It does, uh-huh. A looping pavement sample from a track called Texas Never yeah, Whispers that was on, down. Mm-hmm. It's on their 1992 album Watery Domestic. Um, I think that's a fucking great uh, and understated little tune. Uh, made a really nice single. Also, the video uh, is basically Gattaca. Is it? The movie Gattaca. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant film. And I think they just lifted the idea directly from that for the video. Um, the rest of that album, though, to me, really pretty average. It's stodgy. I said that to you before. I think it's quite a stodgy record. Yeah, the quiet songs lack any poignancy. You were talking about the aching, they lack poignancy to me, mm. and the heavier stuff like the track Hemoglobin. It's just a bit naff and sloppy. It's, mm. it's just not well executed. I can totally understand what, when he says it's got a blanket sound. I think I can totally see that because it, it does sound like you've been spending nine months like in a cocaine binge working on a record. It may sound good in the studio, but to everyone else it just sounds beige and fucking. Yeah, like, it's maybe had the personality mixed out of it as yeah, well by uh-huh. overworking it. Um, Sleeping with ghosts, two thousand and three. 
1.4 million sales and got to a, a number 11 in the Giant, UK. Giant, yeah. Um, and here's the thing, right? So at this point, they toured with Elbow and then with Harmar Superstar. I mean, what the fuck? Are they? I mean, this is why I was like, I think this seems to me like a band that's losing its way. Mm-hmm. Like, how can we get bigger? Can we reach out to some kind of other audience? I mean, you're touring with Harmar Superstar, who's basically a fucking joke act mm-hmm. on the back of the strokes, you know, knowing them. And then Elbow, who are almost synonymous with bland British college pub rock or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck you, you call that Middle England bullshit. And, and that's who placebo are going on tour with. I, I just I just don't really get where they see themselves yeah, at that pretty point. Bizarre. Um they this also, is quite an aggressive record as well. Yeah, it's it's some unusual sequencing as well. I mean they start it with Bulletproof Cupid. First of all, that title is shared with a far superior Girls Against Boys song. <laughs> and and given that Bulletproof Cupid actually had a wee look at this to see if it was like a literary reference or something like that, given that it doesn't seem to be a common phrase or lifted from anywhere, you know, a, a novel or something like that, I can only assume they just lifted that title from the Girls Against Boys song. I mean, because he's, he's clearly into stuff like Girls Against Boys, mm-hmm. so he just liked that and thought, oh, we could do a song that sounds more like a Bulletproof Cupid. I don't know. Decent wee rock instrumental, and I think would have made an ideal B-side in one of the earlier singles but it's just a bit basic for a Mm -hmm. band at this stage of their career and it's very odd to have it open this record don't understand that decision at all Uh, you mentioned The Bitter End earlier on the fifth track on this got to number 12 in the UK Really nice wee escalating spooky synth in that that, that kind of denotes mm-hmm. the bulk of the, the chorus that, that became quite an, an iconic little motif for them. Other stuff in this that stands out to me. Seventh track, I think Plasticine, big saturated, grungy, punky yeah, tune. It's a cool song, nice that, and like simple. That. When I was into Placebo properly, I would have loved that. You know, if that came out in one of their earlier records, uh, and the eighth track, Special Needs, it's quite a nice tune. Remember me, special needs. Just 19, suckers dream. I guess I thought you had the flavor. Uh, it really kind of flourishes. It does this thing where it kind of blossoms and opens up. Um, and that delayed piano line that, that bounces around is, is really pretty. Yeah, I think it's an okay record. I quite enjoyed Second Sight, the 10th track. It's got a lot of that early energy for the first record, but but a lot more a lot more grown up and a lot more rounded, and mature sounding, which I quite liked, and wasn't really expecting that. And um, protect me from what I want, I'd heard before. I don't know how. Yeah, it's just not, it's not a good song, to be honest. See, well, yeah, I don't think that's a great song either. And they actually technology and I think consolidate some of this European popularity released that as a single translated into French. Protégé Moi. Mm-hmm. yeah. And it was, um, translation aside, it's just a weird song for a single. It's yeah, kind of like uh, a turgid waltz. Le temps n'avait rien 
the chorus refrain is still in English. Yeah. And the chorus refrain as well feels really clumsy. You know, when, when he's doing that protect me from what I want line, it's just a few shoehorned into the bar. Mm-hmm. So why they didn't at least change that when they translated it into French, I just can't figure that out at all. Yeah. Um, um, he says he thinks it's their fourth best record. He likes it. Mid-table. He likes it because it's the most sonically daring and electro- and it's one of the most sonically daring and electronic sounding records that they have. And it's a perfect mixture of what they would try to do, which is like fuse vintage synthesizers with old school analogue recording techniques and guitars and all that. I think um, right now that makes this their St Mirren. I can't remember yeah. off the top of my head, but it might be St Mirren. <laughs> yeah, I think you could be right. Oh dear. Um, um, they were, he, was, he loved that record and he thinks it was really great. So Not really with him on that one. Um... Talking about the French thing, actually, Soulmates Never Die was a live DVD they brought out in 2003, and that was actually taken from a concert in Paris, so again, kind of leaning into that. 2004, they brought out Once More With Feeling, which is a singles collection, and given what was said about this band to this point, that's actually a pretty good thing to have if you're going to be a placebo fan. You know, I do I do think there are great album tracks scattered here and there, um, especially in the first two records, but for the casual listener, that would have been probably the one to have at the time. It included two new songs as well, uh, I Do, and then the single 20 Years. There are 20 Uh, Do you think it's a pretty cool song that? I don't mind that song Yeah uh, 2004 They did the Wembley Arena show Where I guest appearance By Robert Smith He joined them for two songs I think he did Boys Part And Without You I'm Nothing oh, nice And he did a cover of uh, Boys Don't Cry Something like that Cure song mm-hmm. Can't remember which one Okay, well, hang, hang on a second, hang on a second. Uh, so, this is quite a lot to digest. Somehow. So, somehow. <laughs> How about we just put the brakes on there, okay? We come back, do more of the discography, and then look at this record itself in a bit more detail, do the Nexus and any other stuff besides uh, next week. Because yeah. uh, there's a lot of music to get cut into this as well, and we want to give folk a chance to get the grips with it. Plus, we have a... Well, I know that I, at least, have a fairly... Incredible Nexus <laughs> uh, Waiting for you at the end of the next part How's that sound to you? Sounds great Okay, doke Well in that case folks We'll see you here Same place Same theme Same lipstick Next week Woo Bye <laughs> <laughs>